The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City Church. Hi, my name is Sarah Wolf. I'm a member here at Story City, and I have the privilege of bringing uh, this morning's scripture for us, which comes from Matthew 5, verses 1 through 4. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thank you, Sarah. Good morning, everyone. How are we? Doing well? Hey, hasn't God given us a beautiful day this morning? I mean, where do we live? This is nuts. This is so great. And uh, I just wanted to give a shout out over here. Uh, For those of you that are online and can't see, we're next leveling it over here. Johnny and Mary Lee brought a full-on playpen for their kid. And uh, I just want to see more of that in the future out here. It's just awesome. Can we give them a round of applause? Um, Hey, if if you're new here, uh, my name is Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here. And we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount together. uh, And we're in the Beatitudes right now. And so... Uh, we're going to jump in right there, and let's start in this place this morning. We get to talk on the fun topic this morning of being sad. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, and this is a good sermon for me because I'm, I'm an Eeyore by nature, and so this really fits, fits me. I'm excited to talk about it. Um, on the evening of October 1st, 2017, a man named Stephen Paddock, he was 64 years old from Mesquite, Nevada decided to open fire on a crowd attending the Route 91 Harvest Musical Festival in Los Angeles, or I'm sorry, in Las Vegas, on the Strip. You remember where you were when this happened? It wasn't that long ago. Between 10.05 and 10.15 p.m., he fired more than 1,000 rounds from his 32nd floor suite in the Mandalay Bay Hotel. He killed 60 people. He wounded 411, and there was greater fallout after that as the crowds panicked. About an hour later, Paddock was found dead in his room from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. In the hours that followed, quickly as it happens these days, the commentary flooded on social media. As the country vented its shock and its horror into the internet. There was a clear first instinct on display. Find someone or something to blame. Who are we going to blame for this? Gun control, mental health, easy, obvious targets. They took the brunt of the hits. And as I read the posts and processed my own emotions, I came across a quote by a man named Kenneth Tanner, who's a pastor of a church called Holy Redeemer in Rochester, Michigan, and a generally wise Yoda-type guy. It was a matter of fact and understated quote. It cut through the noise like a hot knife. He just said this, our nation does not know how to mourn. Our nation does not know how to mourn. It wasn't an accusation and it it was just an observation. It was just an observation about the state of our nation and how it processes and reacts to tragedy and we've had our fair share recently. We don't know how to mourn. We don't know how. Like a child doesn't know how to swim or balance a checkbook. We just don't 
know how. We've been raised on a diet of consumeristic comforts that have insulated us, of expressive individualism that has promised us. And we are a nation that subconsciously believes that we should be able to guard ourselves from any and all suffering and pain. But the reality is that suffering and pain have been commonplace throughout history and unavoidable, and they still are in most places in the world today. We view tragedy and evil as an avoidable problem that we should fix. If something is wrong, we should fix it. And we reject the notion that evil and suffering and the things that we mourn are simply a material manifestation of a spiritual alienation from God that we must mourn. Put simply, we believe that if something is wrong, it shouldn't be. And we believe that we have the tools to fix it on our own. So in the face of tragedy and evil, we more naturally feel anger and disgust, which aren't wrong in and of themselves, but they're incomplete. We feel those much more naturally than we feel grief. But let's think about this. If the brokenness of the world is something that comes from a spiritual alienation to God, meaning it's rooted so deep in us that we can't uproot it or fix it ourselves, mourning becomes a natural step in the process of healing. Uh, It becomes the way that we ultimately work through the problem of evil, which is above our pay grade. And it points us to a savior who can foot the bill. Our nation does not know how to mourn. We don't deny that things are broken. You can't. We don't deny that they aren't as they should be, that they're not whole, that they're not right, but we don't know how to lament. We shed few tears for the brokenness on display. We opt for something that feels more productive. We get to fixing. But this is not a sermon for our nation, and Jesus' words weren't for a nation. They were for a church, a people. And we as a church need to hear the words of Jesus today. We need to hear the words of Jesus today. You do. I do. We need to hear them. Jesus says this. He says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This is to say that Jesus is trying to give us something and pointing us towards mourning well. He's saying healing for your souls is on the other side of mourning. That's my daughter right there. Love you, Adeline. But while this is not a sermon for the nation, I want to say this. I do want to say this. I think it's important to say that the church in America is not thriving by and large right now. To paint in broad strokes. It is shrinking. Leaders are falling. Christian figureheads and celebrity mega pastors are being exposed as men whose gifting was not matched by their love for Christ in heartbreaking numbers. Just recently, a couple weeks ago, Ravi Zacharias hit the news headlines with heartbreaking, tragic news of a lack of character. And many of the Christians that are following these leaders are complacent. Why? What's going on? I believe the church 
And our nation has bought into the lie of the nation. It has traded the way of Christ and his call to a cross for the way of the culture and its promised crown. To borrow biblical language from the book of Exodus and Hebrews 11, I believe the church in our nation has chosen to enjoy the comforts of Egypt and refused to wander in the wilderness where God's presence would dwell with and lead it. The church has allowed itself to be discipled by the culture. It's lost its prophetic voice. It's forfeited its countercultural distinctiveness. And in doing so, it's lost its power or is starting to. But in the Beatitudes, where Jesus says statements like, Blessed are those that mourn, that seem so upside down to us, we do have a roadmap back to the power of Christ for his church, even now. And back to his power in our families and in our homes and in our hearts. It's a clear picture in the Beatitudes of the type of people that are blessed by God. And the type of people that he will create when they choose to follow him. The Beatitudes are the American dream turned upside down. Can I just be honest with you? And maybe you can join me and be honest with yourself. As I admit that I've been raised to believe that it is the rich in spirit who are blessed. I've been raised every moment of my waking life in a country that tells me that it's the rich in spirit that are blessed, for they will inherit the world, right? They will inherit the world. But Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's where he starts the Beatitudes. For they will inherit an eternal kingdom given by God, that we cannot yet see. And this sounds sweet at first glance. The Beatitudes have kind of a nice, sweet child book reading. But the reality is, if they're taken seriously, they are revolutionary statements that will overturn our way of life and force us into a moment of reckoning to take the way of Jesus seriously. Jesus, in saying that the poor in spirit are the ones who will inherit the kingdom of God, is laying a foundation of all Christian living as he begins the Beatitudes. He's giving an internal awareness to us that we must come to reckon with the fact that we have nothing to offer God. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. What does it mean? It means to recognize that before God, I have nothing. Spiritually speaking, I can offer God nothing. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. I can't buy or barter or posture my way into his favor. Spiritually, I am bereft. I possess nothing but deep need, and yet mystery of mysteries. In God's eternal economy, it is exactly an awareness of my poverty of spirit that qualifies me to receive the eternal kingdom of God and riches untold. Poorness of spirit is the only currency God banks in. It's the only cash that his bank accepts. And after laying a foundation of saying that it's the poor in spirit that are blessed because they will inherit the eternal kingdom, Jesus starts to build on that foundation. And the first statement he makes is, blessed are those that mourn, for they're the ones that are going to be comforted. There's mourning promised to those who, there's comfort promised to those who mourn. Jared told us last week that the word beatitude means blessing. That's what it means. It means blessing. And blessed means happy, happy. So Jesus just said this. Let's, get, let's just boil this down. Jesus said, happy are the sad. 
Happy are the sad. Hmm. Let me try that again. Maybe it'll make more sense this time. Happy are the sad. No, still doesn't make sense to me. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It is upside down. The way of Jesus held up against the backdrop of this world looks upside down. A better word, a more helpful word is, is a paradox. There, when we try to understand an infant God, we're gonna rub up against realities that we can't process, that don't fit in the categories of our brains in the same way that it would be really lame if I could figure God out because he would be smaller than me. <laughs> if I can put him in my brain, he's above our brains. This is a paradox. There is a happiness of soul that can only be possessed by those who mourn. So let me try to unfold this paradox. And let's start here with this question. What does mourning and lament look like in the Christian life? What does it look like? What will it appear as? This was the first point this morning. Christians are people who mourn what God mourns. What God mourns. But let's start with what Christian mourning is not. It's not a false piety. It's not a false pretense of godliness. Jesus isn't asking you or me to become really sad monks. He's not asking us to work hard, to look glib and sad all the time, to deny ourselves any comfort and all joy and as some means of appearing godly to men or earning God's favor as we forsake the world in some ritualistic way. That's an unattractive and bad representation of Jesus and it will not be attractive to a watching world. Happy sadness is less about demeanor or even about what we do. It's more about what's going on in our hearts and why it's going on there. But what exactly should we mourn in our hearts? First, we, we mourn what God mourns when we mourn for our own sin. Let me say that again. We mourn what God mourns when we mourn for our own sin. Mourning over sin starts with getting honest about who we are before God, ourselves and others. When you slow down enough, slow down enough, and we live at a fast pace, so we don't do this too often. I don't do this too often. But when you slow down enough to notice the actual inclinations of your heart, when you find yourself saying things that are destructive and hurtful to the people you love the most or about people that are not in the room, when you do something so dark that it shakes you, or inverse of that, when you wake up one day and realize that your conscience has been so seared by repetitive sin that you've been giving to yourself to for years that what used to sting and convict no longer has any effect on your soul whatsoever. When you start noticing these things in your life by the grace of God and his spirit at work in your life, you are presented and I am presented with an opportunity an opportunity to grieve at our inability to do the good that we wish we could do. And even more, to begin to grieve the reality that your own sin and my own sin is the most destructive force in my life and yours. Long ago, asked to write an editorial 
for a newspaper answering the question, what is wrong with the world? Catholic thinker and author G.K. Chesterton responded with a two or three word quip. He said, dear editor, I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. Mourning over sin is the recognition that the problem that has broken the world has, is in my own heart. And that it's the most destructive force in my life. And when I start recognizing that, that's when I begin to say with the Apostle Paul in Romans 7, what a wretched man I am. Who will save me from this body of death? But this kind of mourning for sin is a blessed mourning, according to Jesus. It's a happy sadness. And here's why, and this is so important. Don't miss this. It's a blessed mourning because it leads to repentance And repentance leads us to Jesus, who will comfort us. Repentance is a church word. Let me tell you what it means. Repentance simply means agreeing with what God says about my sin. It's agreeing with what God says about my sin and then turning from it towards him. Walking in faith again. The sorrow for sin that leads to repentance always gives way to a healing and joy in Jesus. Here's something you can take to the bank as you wrestle with your sin. Repentance takes the sin that had us living in fear and shame and transforms it into a catalyst for new growth and joy in Jesus. When we bring things into the light, bring them to God, expose ourselves, our poverty of spirit, and turn to him, repentance takes the sin that had me living in fear and shame, and as I experience the grace of God washing over me through the gospel, it transforms it into a catalyst for new growth and new joy in Jesus. What great grace. Mourning over our own sin is the first step in repentance, and as such, it's the first step towards healing and happiness in God. Only the man who cries out, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me, can go on to say, I thank God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And only that man is the saved man. He's the blessed man. And so the beginning of mourning what God mourns is mourning my own sin, but we don't stop there. We move forward. Secondly, Christians mourn what God mourns for when we mourn for the sins of others in our world. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, writes this, and I couldn't say it better, so I'm just gonna read this for you. The Christian mourns also because of the sins of others. He does not stop at himself. He sees the same thing in others. He is concerned about the state of society and the state of the world, and as he reads his newspaper, which... I don't know if any of you do that anymore. We'll call it Twitter here. As he reads his Twitter, he does not stop at what he sees or simply express disgust at it. He mourns because of it. He mourns for the sins of others. Indeed, he goes beyond that and mourns over the state of the whole world as he sees the moral muddle and unhappiness and suffering of mankind. He sees the whole world as an, is in an unhappy condition. Listen to this. And he knows that it is all due to sin. And he mourns because of it. I love what Dr. Jones says here. He says that the Christian doesn't stop at disgust over society and the world. He doesn't stop at anger. He sees with spiritual eyes that all the chaos is ultimately the fallout of sin and that he shares in that. His inclination to lack out, his or her inclination to lash out in anger is tempered 
by an awareness that he or she is a part of the problem as much as anyone else is. And so we move past disgust to tears, or we process in mourning before we move to action, to mourning. Christian mourning is a sober, deep longing for things to be set right, and it points to Jesus, who alone can restore all things by his power and blood. And I just wonder if you and I might be well served, even this week, when we feel the weight of the brokenness in our world, to just be sad, let ourselves grieve, and wish for healing. So we are blessed when we mourn for our own sin. We are blessed when we mourn for the sin of others. Next point, we are blessed when we mourn because we have hope in Jesus. We are blessed when we mourn because we have hope in Jesus. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says that Christians don't grieve as those who have no hope. We mourn, but not as those who have no hope. Our mourning looks different than the world's mourning. We have hope. Christians are free to mourn with hope because you and I know the major plot lines in this story. We've been given them in scripture. We know how this thing ends. Now, we didn't get the screenplay. We don't know every line that's gonna be spoken. We don't know the the way it's gonna be said. We don't know uh, every twist and every intricate turn. And so it takes faith. Things look bad sometimes. It's hard. We walk by faith, not by sight. But we do know the major plot line. We know the beginning, we know the fall, we know the turn and the climax at the cross where Christ restores all things and we know that in the end, the way this movie ends is that he restores all things back to what they were in Eden. He establishes his kingdom on earth. And so we don't mourn without hope. Big surprise here, I'm gonna talk about the Lord of the Rings. In the Lord of the Rings trilogy, there is a moment in The Return of the King where Sam, who is the true hero of Lord of the Rings, one of the two hobbits that carries the ring, is deep into the hard journey of carrying the one ring to the cracks of doom at Mount Doom in Mordor, and evil has just worn him down. He is far into this thing. Darkness is wrapped around him like tar. The sky is gray in the landscape he is navigating. He is tired. He is alone. He is sad. He is estranged from his family and his home. And in this moment, he ends up and he finds himself high up on a mountain. And for a moment, he's able to see through a crack in the clouds that have covered him indefinitely. And he sees a star shining above him. And we read this from the brilliant pen of Tolkien. There, peeping among the cloud rack, high up in the mountains, Sam saw a white star twinkle for a while. The beauty of it smote his heart. As he looked up out of the forsaken land, and hope returned to him. For like a shaft, clear and cold, the thought pierced him that in the end the shadow was only a small and passing thing. There was light and high beauty forever beyond its reach. This is a brilliant illustration of the reality of suffering in the Christian life and the already not yet of the kingdom we are now filled with through the first fruits of the Spirit. The shadow is what is passing, goodness is eternal. 
goodness is eternal. The Catholic author Chesterton also reminded his readers to remember that goodness isn't just final, it's original. Goodness isn't just final. It doesn't just win in the end. It's original. It was there eternally before evil showed up on the scene. The light won't just shine after the darkness is ended. It shined eternally before it. Evil may feel, hear me, feel or seem like the more powerful force at times in our planet. But held up against the goodness of God, it is a feeble and fading force. It's day Its days are numbered. And goodness is unlikely, like two hobbits carrying the one ring to rule them all to Mount Doom. It's unlikely. It's quiet at times. It may appear to be losing the fight, but it never is. Jesus is so much more powerful than Satan. It's not close. Listen to this verse, 2 Thessalonians 2.8. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. This isn't talking about COVID. The breath of his mouth. This is a different kind of killing with your breath. All Jesus is going to have to do in the end to defeat the enemy is breathe on him. It's not a fair fight. It's not close because Jesus is so much more powerful than evil. Our hope is that much greater than our temporary mourning. But it doesn't erase the pain. It doesn't undo the current reality, the already not yet, the evil all around us and in us. But as we allow ourselves to feel the genuine weight of the fallout of sin in our lives and in the world, and in our culture, and in our city. Jesus says that as we feel that, we're blessed. It's a blessed thing to feel. We are blessed because we do it with hope that the morning is not final. Hear me, that all sadness in Jesus, all sadness gives way to gladness. Every night ends with a sunrise. This is the nature of walking with Jesus. Psalm 126, five and six. Those who sow with tears, who use their tears as seed, who allow themselves to lament, will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. God's word is awesome. What a promise. It's the true nature of life with Jesus. The fullness of joy, songs of joy, the harvest of happiness to say it simply, blessedness that Jesus is talking about in the Beatitudes. It can only be found in its true, full-fledged form on the other side of mourning. Mourning over sin, mourning over the sin done to us, mourning over the sin of the world, mourning over the pain it causes others, mourning over the pain it's caused us and the way it's broken the fabric of our society. We're blessed when we mourn because we have hope that it's not final. Last point, and we'll close. We are blessed when we mourn because we become like Jesus. Mourning makes us like Jesus. Isaiah 61 is a prophecy of what Jesus came to do. It foretold. It's a, and in this verse, Jesus actually reads this verse at the inauguration, the start of his ministry in Nazareth in the temple. Isaiah 61, one and two, listen to this. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. 
because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, listen, to comfort all who mourn. Comforting the mourning wasn't some peripheral issue for Jesus. It was at the center of his purpose in coming. It was prophesied that Jesus would come as someone who comforted people who were sad. It's what he came to do. But here's an unexpected twist. Just a few chapters earlier in Isaiah 53, Jesus himself is described as a man of sorrows. The one who came to comfort the morning is himself described as a mourner, a man of sorrows who was acquainted with grief. He entered into our mourning willingly. He experienced it deeply. He identifies with us in it. He felt the weight of living under the weight of sin. Multiple times in the Gospels, we read of Jesus, the one who came to comfort the morning, weeping himself. We never read in any of the four Gospels of Jesus laughing, but we read multiple times of him weeping. In John 11, as he stands before the tomb of his dear friend Lazarus, who had died four days ago, we read that Jesus is overwhelmed with grief as he allows himself to feel the sting of death that we feel. He identifies with our sorrow and anger. And we read in that text as he talks to Mary that he's deeply troubled and moved in spirit. And that literally can be translated. He's indignant. He's grunting. He's angry as he looks at death. He's saying, this is not what I created. This is not what reality is meant to be marked by. And he's angry at it. But two verses later, in the shortest verse in the Bible, Two words. Jesus doesn't stop at anger. He doesn't stop at indignance. He allows himself to mourn. Jesus wept. He wept. Knowing full well that he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, he had hope. He had perfect hope. He had beyond hope. He had certainty that he was about to take a dead, decomposed body and speak to it and make it start walking again out of the tomb in its grave clothes. And yet he weeps. He enters into our mourning nonetheless. Why? Why would Jesus do this? You know, it was the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead that ultimately initiated the path that would take Jesus to the cross as the Pharisees were outraged and afraid of the miracle he had done. And so as Jesus stands before the tomb of Lazarus, having raised him from the dead, he is looking forward and going, I just secured my way to the cross. I just started, I took the first step here from this point forward that is going to end in me laying down my life on the cross for these people that are going to kill me. Jesus allowed himself to mourn for you and me 
Because not only does he identify with us, but he was the one who paid our price. He was the one that swallowed up everything that is truly worth mourning about. He hung on the cross and felt all the brokenness of sin, my sin, your sin, the world's sin, society's sin. It all got poured out on him, the only perfect human being that has ever lived, swallowed up the sadness of death. So that when you this morning, if you will, just simply come by faith to the Father and say, I believe that he did that. God is waiting to pour out the reward Jesus earned onto you so that you have hope as you navigate this already not yet suffering marked world. As you experience the tension of mourning and happiness, of blessing and conflict. You can know who you are. You can know where you're headed. You can know what God wants to do in your life. You can know what purpose he has for you. And you can know that in the end, the end of this movie is eternal life in Jesus, in glory, forever. Sin, death, darkness, undone by the glory of Jesus Christ. All you have to do is come by faith. And you no longer mourn as the world mourns. I hope you've come to Jesus in truth. If you haven't, we'd love to talk with you. We'd love to know it. I'll be up at the stage after the service. Pastor Andy will be up at the stage after the service. Pastor Jared will be here. We would love to pray with you. It would be the greatest joy we would ever experience in a week to walk somebody to faith in Christ. And as we close, a practical step for you this week. Don't resist sadness this week when it comes knocking on your door. Let yourself cry. Let yourself feel the weight of the already not yet. Be aware of your soul. You're not just a body. Be aware of what is going on in your soul. Process it with God in prayer. Grieve, mourn, and then hope in Jesus. A harvest of joy awaits those who do this. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ, our hero, the Savior, our path to you, the one who turns mourning into a blessed thing, the one who welcomes the poor. Jesus, by your Holy Spirit, do what only you can do and save souls even now. Convict of sin, give hope through Christ and bring the repentance that leads to faith and new life in you. It's in Jesus' name, amen.